The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder, and I glean secrets from influential figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realise still feel like a fraud. But you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. I love the fact you called me up and you said, I'm launching a podcast about imposters. Great. So that's how Kimberly sees me. <laughs> this episode, I'm chatting to Faraz Osman, MD and Head of Creative at the award-winning independent production company Goldwaller. Faraz and I go way back to the days of fumbling around for allies when we were researchers together. And I've always found him contagiously passionate about this industry. But I also know he's had some tough times navigating it too. I've watched him climb the ranks through Blue Peter and This Morning and land huge roles like Editor of Education at Channel 4, recently becoming Chair of the BAFTA Children's Committee too. So I wanted to find out his take on those twists and turns that influenced him to launch his own indie. Enjoy listening in on our conversation. Faraz. All right. I've got this hunch that everyone in the creative industry has imposter syndrome, even though they probably don't talk about it. That feeling that despite your successes, that you are a, a fraud and any moment now, someone's going to find you out. I mean, is that, is that a fair assumption? I don't think you're alone, but I, I don't necessarily agree. I think that the, the problem is, is that this is an industry that is not a meritocracy. A lot of it is to do with access. A lot of it is to do with who you know, what you know, etc. There's a lot of Nepo babies, as they're now, as they're now known, going around. And, and there are some people that genuinely believe that they deserve to be the head of some public service broadcaster or they deserve to be like you know running a an international streamer but there are people in that are in a different club that's not the imposter club but the entitled club should we call them that that definitely exists as well mm. but what i want to do is drill down into your career and those challenging moments because i think it's how we handle the bumps in the road that shapes our character and the future paths that we take and i wonder whether it's all fed into you setting up goldwaller so First off, though, I want to do something kind of fun. I'm that sounds like the rest of this podcast isn't going to be fun. No. <laughs> Let's do no, a fun bit now and then like the really serious, terrifying bit later. Is, totally. is that what you're getting at? We're going to have a laugh <laughs> and then I'm going to go right in there with some serious stuff. How would you describe yourself to someone at a dinner party if they said, oh, hi, hey, Fraz, what is it you do again? Oh, that's, that's a great question. It depends who's sitting around a dinner table, I guess. That's interesting in itself. It's interesting. Why, why, why does it depend as a British Asian who went to and pretty much predominantly, if not all white school, and is now working in an industry where there is significant lack of representation of people of colour and those from different backgrounds, you know, they, those dinner tables, as we, we call them, like are very multifaceted. I can, I can go from being at a dinner table with my parents and my family 
and it would be a very different conversation with different food and a different culture to to the one that I have to go to at some private members club with some people that are either self-important or actually important and and that's kind of that's part of the game that kind of code shifting between your different identities is what I've grown up with just as a British Asian living in a white world but but also you know when you get through to this industry you almost have to find new levels and it's not exclusive to me look everyone has a work persona a social persona and a personal persona but I, I do think certain communities have it amplified and that is a really long and not useful answer to your fun question which was how would I describe myself as a dinner party well look I'm a I'm a tv producer that loves tv and yeah that's kind of it really yeah I like to have fun I think I think tv should be fun and I still think tv should be fun that's why I got into it and I want people to feel like we are having fun in this industry did you know many people in TV when you set out working in this industry? No. And, and actually, that was part of a conscious decision about why I wanted to do it. I don't want to overlabor this point, but it is a reality. And I guess if we're going to talk about imposter syndrome, a lot of it is to do with personal identity. But within the, within the British Asian community, you know, there are two things. One, there is kind of certain jobs that are seen as worthy and professional and valuable. And then there is a kind of sense of, well, you know, says we know somebody that's in the industry and then they can help you kind of get further and further and, and I you know probably with a bit of my middle child syndrome rebelled against that quite a lot I wanted to do something that no one else was doing mainly so I couldn't be benchmarked against other members of my family and other members of my community because that happens a lot like you know just in our culture and, and and everyone wants their children to do well and and get out of the structures that have kept them either poorer or marginalized and a lot of that is to do with wealth and success and I think success in the creative industry is not necessarily the same as success in other professional industries. So you said then that actually part of the reason you really wanted to get into TV was because you didn't know anybody in TV and it was almost Mm. not the norm for someone from your community. What was your first role in in telly. I ended up going to university. I actually studied media and television, did some work experience at a radio production company and ended up working. And this and this was kind of like my first taste of kind of doing something that had, I guess, national or even global impact. So I was working for a radio production company who made a lot of shows for Radio One and commercial radio stations and, and then internationally as well. And like with the like world's biggest DJs that I really respected and like kind of read about in magazines. And then suddenly I was in a room in a studio with them and I was like, what is going on? This is crazy. And just kind of ridiculously exciting. And, and I was also, you know, obviously caught up in the whole, I'm in London, this is what's going on now. And any this was kind of pre-Facebook time. So it was basically, I would go to university and then come back home to my sleepy town and be able to talk about this world that I was now involved in and have everybody who kind of doubted me kind of go, you're, you're doing what? And you're hanging out with who? And, and that was, you know, honestly, it was a bit of a drug. And then I ended up hilariously seeing a job advertise. This is going to show my age, but I saw a job ad in the Guardian Media newspaper for a researcher at the Asian Programs Unit up in, in Birmingham. And I literally went, I'm Asian and I can make telly probably I should apply for that and I just applied and like you know in hindsight I was I'm not gonna lie was probably quite jammy getting that job and it was it was based on my own arrogance of going I reckon I could do that and not doubting myself at that stage when I probably should have frankly I went up there did the interview and and the next thing I know I was kind of packing my car driving up the M40 and and starting a job as a researcher at the BBC which was you know, I was proud of it, but I was w- definitely walking into a world completely naive and completely blind. Didn't know anybody at work in television. 
my university degree didn't really set me up for the realities of working in this world, it set me up for understanding the theoretical nature of the world. But I certainly was completely oblivious to how this industry actually operates. Well, that's got to be a good thing, though, because it sounds like it didn't even enter your mind to be concerned about whether or not you'd be able to do it. You kind of backed yourself. You thought, I can do that. And then you went and did it. So there were no there were no surprises there for you because you sort of walked in confidently and thought, I, I, I'm just going to smash this. When you're applying for work you are saying that you can do something but you're also looking for validation from whoever's interviewing you and whoever's going to employ you to kind of go yeah I reckon you can probably do that so as soon as I got the role I was a bit like okay cool so not only do I think I can do it but other people think I can do it as well and and particularly when you're very early in your career you kind of go okay well I guess this is the place for me then I've kind of figured it out what was quite evident quite quickly when I when I joined that job is that you know I was the only Asian person in an all-white school but suddenly I was actually the only person that was brought up in an all-white environment in in an Asian workplace so I almost like wasn't Asian enough I kind of went from being not white enough in that world to being not Asian enough in this world and you know a lot of people spoke their mother tongue or they you know they were were more culturally aware of their own heritage and their own background and maybe kind of consumed a lot more cultural artefacts, be it Bollywood music or Tamil movies or whatever it might be, than I was ever connected to. And and that kind of gave me a, a kind of almost an identity crisis in the opposite direction. And, and just kind of constantly being aware of both my perspective, negative and positive, was something that I kind of quickly recognised that I either had to embrace or it would probably lead me down a quite a dark hole quite quickly. So it was it was weird. And there were times where it was very weird. Like I didn't I didn't have any Asian friends at school, right? I didn't have any I had very few Asian friends at university. And then suddenly I'm in a world where everybody I'm looking at looks like me and are working in my industry and did I make some mistakes when I was working there? I can tell you that for free. <laughs> the code shifting thing is interesting, isn't it? Did you notice yourself code switching at that point? Or have there been other examples where you've actually changed your approach, your personality to fit in or to mask something about you? I just thought it was life. So everyone experiences it in some ways, but the extremities of how those from kind of marginalised communities or other communities experience it is, is definitely evident. And I have, I have felt it and have leaned into it and, and have also tried to run for the hills. And you just get more... I'd like to think that I'm better at it. And I do think it's a power. I don't, I don't look, see it as a negative thing. I, I think it's a, a skill that I have, that I can walk into a room, pick up the vibe and very quickly, you know, try to ingratiate. And I think that that is actually good for program making and telly that you have to connect and move into worlds quite quickly and i used to call it being chameleon right Make, like getting a rapport with contributors with either the people you're working with or the people you're filming to make them feel comfortable to open up to you and usually i would have no i wouldn't have anything in common with this person i was filming but i'd find something that we'd laugh about and it would break the ice or whatever it is and then you crack on but there must be points where it's it's actually unhealthy the amount you code shift or be a chameleon in your own career like there are people who you know I know from experience are in teams feeling really alone who are acting almost a completely different persona 
the whole time. And I mean, that mm. that is pretty exhausting. I, I do think that there's a subtle difference between being a chameleon and, and code shifting, right? I, I think being a chameleon is, is kind of hiding your identity. It's actually masking who you really are to not get noticed. You know, it's camouflage, right? Okay. That's what chameleons do. Whereas I think with code shifting, it is, it is subtly different because... There is no suggestion that you're not Asian. There is no suggestion that, like, you're not from London or the South East. There's no suggestion that you're not from a particular class or you have a particular gender or, or whatever it might be. It's just that you're turning up some parts of your identity and your personality that may make you feel more comfortable in certain environments and you're turning down the others to feel less threatening in certain environments and you're just kind of constantly moving moving that along you know I, I can't hide my ethnicity it's literally on my skin you know I can't hide my gender it's literally on my skin I can't hide my my accent it's literally coming out of my mouth you know we we start mocking people like I always remember that video of Joss Stone who kind of I think she turned up at a, an award ceremony once with a very American accent and you're a bit like love what you're doing don't don't do that it like we know what you're trying to do and it's not working and I don't know if anybody's seen the Elizabeth Holmes documentary just fascinating so well there's a drama series on, on Disney plus now you should check it out it's called the dropout and it's brilliant and it's a really really great a great story about a woman trying to code shift or be a chameleon so hard that she kind of hoodwinks a lot of people into who she really is and it's a great it's a great story tinder and swindler like, as well right yeah exactly and all, all of those sort of things it's like you know there are people that are so charismatic that they're able to kind of be someone they're not and that is dangerous obviously and and that is being manipulative and and i don't think that's what code switching is but Ramadan is coming up, right? So I start fasting. And I think when you and I first met, I probably was fasting when I when we were working together. Yeah. And no one really knows what to do. They're a bit like, oh my God, you're fine. It's a bit like, oh, I better hide my... Like, it's the worst, trust me now. The worst thing in the world you can do is kind of eat underneath your desk because you're worried that the person opposite you is fasting. It makes them feel like a tit. It makes you feel like a tit. It makes everyone feel like this situation is causing more problems than actually what it's meant to be doing, which is that person is is kind of considering their own their their own identity and their own spirituality and their own faith and etc and they're not asking you to do anything differently if somebody comes up to me while I'm fasting and asks me questions about it I'll happily answer them it's just part of my identity in the same way that somebody came up to you and asked you about what it's like being a mother mm. you'll happily talk to them about your kids and the fact you didn't get much sleep last night and they learned something new and amazing at school etc this whole whole idea of you going to work and not allowed to talk about being a mother is just frankly wrong and and that is kind of what I mean it's like it's my identity I'm bringing it but I'm not amplifying it if I went into work and talked about nothing other than the fact that I was fasting I would annoy a lot of people and probably annoy myself as well this is the imposter club coming up I'm never going to be able to convince these people that I'm part of their club. So I might as well just hand in my membership card and get out of here. Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. 
And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conote.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. Welcome back to The Imposter Club, where I'm chatting to boss of Goldwaller, Faraz Osman, about the complications of bringing your whole self to work. Coming out of the Asian unit and into your sort of early career, did you find yourself winging it putting on d- different personality to get work to fit in that mm. way i feel like i'm gonna have to tell this story right i've never had pets and my mum doesn't like animals so as a result being quite young i was always wary of them because she was wary of them and we went to this house where these relatives were and they had two quite big dogs i must have been four or five at the time and these dogs got overexcited and they ran and they were jumping up on me and like you know my mum was looking scared and my relatives were like pissing themselves laughing so as a result, I got a phobia of dogs. I wouldn't go say it. it wasn't a phobia, but it was like, I didn't like dogs, mm. right? I was certainly not comfortable around them. And then I spent a period of time when I was out of work as a researcher and I was applying for every job that came along. And there was a job on a show, which was basically Super Nanny for Dogs. I just wrote an application and then we had an interview for it and basically banged on about how much I love dogs and, you know, they're the thing that like, I want to be around all the time. And like, I never had one growing up, so I love looking after my mate's dogs. This stuff. All complete bullshit. I remember thinking while I was having the chat, my God, if I get this job, this could be trouble because like, I could end up filming a dog and like passing out while I'm doing it. I got the job and then very quickly had to get used to the idea that I was going to be around around dogs that, and actually dogs that were naughty as well. Dogs that, you know, in, in almost in some cases dangerous. And I was a bit like, we better suck it up, Buttercup, because this is now your job. (laughs) It's an interesting subject, though. Like, when does winging it turn into blagging it in the in in the wrong way? Like, like what's the line between winging it, knowing that you will just crack on with it and you will make it work, versus actually making up shit that you can't do and you shouldn't be interviewing for? Well, when I look, when when I was earlier in in my career, like being a blagger was seen as a really positive thing. Like, there were TV shows about it. There were, like, Balls of Steel. And, you know, there were shows about kind of getting away with stuff based on your own charisma and your own identity that, that was seen as, like, a like an asset. So, you know, being a, being a blagger, kind of getting yourself on the guest list, kind of getting yourself invited to places that you weren't going to be invited to or, like, you know, etc., was always seen as a really positive thing, particularly if you were kind of trying to you know, I guess do that code shifting thing and, and, and try to get into worlds that you would normally not be welcome into. And and that is absolutely true for when you're starting out in an industry, right? There's no, and, and it, particularly for us who grew up in a bit of a pre-internet or at least a pre-web 2.0 stage where we weren't able to kind of like make films and put them on YouTube or we weren't able to kind of like 
do a podcast about like things that we're passionate about all this that and the other you, the only way that people would know about you is by what you would tell them and that is it right at that time you did actually have to be a bit of an imposter but but i think the, the truth is is that once you get into a particular role like an interview is an hour long a job is at least three months long even in this industry and and so once you get the job people figure out who you are quite quickly and a good manager and a uh, and a, a good team leader will be able to kind of flex to where your skills and experience are and put you in the right place but like whenever I'm doing interviews with people now one of the questions I always try to ask people is what is it that you don't like doing because I think if you can get that out of people and say look this isn't going to this isn't going to preclude you from the job but if you can tell me what you don't like doing then I can figure out where the gaps are because I'm trying to put together teams and once you recognize that actually in most workplaces you are a team member it's very rare that you're an individual and you're just doing that job in isolation you can say I will be brilliant at this this isn't me so if you if I can fill this gap for you but like you've got somebody else to fill this gap then you're going to have a really great team there's no point in having a couple of people that are exactly the same and and this whole issue of people hiring people like themselves is in itself flawed because like well if you're hiring somebody that, that looks like you or does the same thing that you do then what is the value add in what you're getting you should be looking for people that are filling gaps that aren't there so a certain amount of Blagging is okay then, certainly in your earlier career, as long as you can deliver, right? I suppose that that's what we've just summed up there. So embracing the imposter at that point, thinking I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to go for it is all right. If you're kind of impostering yourself into a world that actually you don't really care about, that's what's dangerous, right? If you go into a space and you kind of go, oh, I can perform heart surgery... And actually, you're not really bothered about whether or not the person on the table lives or dies. Then then they, those two things multiply to become the worst case scenario. But if you really want to train to become a doctor, and at the time you don't know if you can do it or not, then you should try and train to become a doctor. And if you can't do it at the end of it, that's kind of okay. But like, I think everyone has to start out as an imposter. Not everyone can start in a place where they know everything all the time. I think the difference for us in the creative industry is that everything that we do is really, really subjective, right? I've seen films that, are, that I think are terrible that have gone on to, you know, become incredibly successful. And I'm like, how did this stuff get away? How did this stuff happen? It is a, a lot of it is luck. A lot of it is nepotism. And, and, and obviously some of it is your skills and experience. And it is kind of putting that all into a cauldron and hoping that the magic potion comes out of it in some way. Back to your career progression, you'd left the Asian unit we're finding your way in producer director roles using the odd bit of blagging to work on formats, some dog related. Um, tell me about one of your biggest breaks into a senior role. Yeah, so I got a role that was a surprise to everyone, to be honest, including me, where I got tapped on the shoulder to do to do a role. And somebody else thought that I could do this job. And I didn't know a huge amount about it, but I was a bit like, yeah, I guess I could do that job. Everything that's on the job description is things that I'm interested in. So I think I can do the job. And then I walked into a job where I was a bit like, whoa, like what is going on here? And I don't know the people and I don't know how this world works. And I didn't have any mentors in that space. And there was a lot of change very quickly when I was there. And it was it was quite a negative experience as a result. It was a positive experience in the sense that like I absolutely wouldn't, wouldn't be where I am now had it not been for me getting that role and being able to add it to what was then a CV, what is now a LinkedIn profile. But it, but it wasn't a pleasant experience in any way. Why not? What, what happened? 
I was in a world where everyone else knew each other, but I didn't know anyone. And I was put into that world because of my otherness. I was put into that world because actually it needed more people like me to have a voice. But I would argue that putting somebody in that world because you recognise their voice is valuable, but then not allowing them to speak is utterly pointless. And that's absolutely what happened in my situation. Now, in addition to that, I absolutely didn't have a lot of the skills and experiences that were required to execute that job in the best way. But my view is, is that like, well, let's work together to figure out where the gaps are in my experience. And I'm, I was, and I said this vocally, I was willing to go out there and fill the gaps in if that's what was required. But because of, for various reasons, it was just never heard. And it got to a point where I was a little bit like, I'm never going to be able to convince these people that I'm part of their club. So I might as well just hand in my membership card at the desk and, and get out of here. It was a very difficult part of my career. And even though it was a fairly high profile job at a fairly high profile place, I didn't have a voice in that world and wasn't able to do anything. And I left and, and was suddenly full of rage and frustration and you know had a massive identity crisis and all of these things happened at the same time I managed to create myself a job where I was a bit like well I'm going to try and do this on my own and and if it doesn't work then I know it doesn't work because of me not because of the systems and structures around me I have a real problem with blaming other people for my own failures I think that that's not a healthy thing to do but I kind of go too far in the other direction Mm. where I put myself in situations and don't ask for help often enough for us, did you did you leave the industry after that terrible experience? I didn't. Le- I didn't leave the industry because I managed to somehow, against the odds, I would argue, find a company who were fledgling but absolutely needed a bit of help and was able to use my experience and my understanding to to help that company grow. And we grew hard and fast and quite significantly. And and but then again. I moved into a company where like I was passionate about the work they were doing, but I wasn't part of their club, if that made sense. Mm-hmm. So I suddenly was in another club where I was a bit like, right, okay, well, I've signed up for membership to this place now. I better literally change my brogues for trainers. That's the kind of world I entered. And, and I would argue made a pretty good success of it. But I then recognised, after being there for a little while, that, that, that we were trying to move the company that we had joined so this is me and my now business partner we were trying to move that company in a way that the original founder didn't feel like it was his vision anymore so then I left and have have ended up doing what I'm doing now which is kind of running my own thing we've got a website head to theimposterclub.com where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination. Wahaha. Don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. 
Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. So let's go back there a sec because there were three steps there. One is really terrible personal experience at a company where you felt excluded and not listened to. You left that, picked yourself up, found something in the interim and actually had the confidence to say there, I can see where this company should be going and it's not going there. So I want to do something myself cut to set up with person that you mm. met at that company I mean that's quite a mm. pickup from somewhere where you've explained yourself as having a real career and personal low at that first company how how have you done that honestly Kimberly I tell you why I think I've done it is because I'm so nerdy about this industry. I care about it so much and have, have dedicated like almost all of my adult life to this world and you just don't want to throw it away because it is it you know you know I don't drink I don't take drugs I hate the idea of being addicted to something but I I probably am addicted to this industry almost in in an unhealthy way every so often I thought you know what this just isn't worth it I've had this analogy and it's it's with like a lot of things that I've done where if I feel like sometimes it's like you're dating a supermodel right so you kind of like hear me out on this it feels like you're dating a supermodel so you're a bit like you go on this date with a supermodel and you're a bit like, you go out there and everybody around you is a bit like, oh my God, you're dating who? Oh my God, that's amazing. I mean, God, how did you pull her? That's incredible. What's going on? And you're kind of like, yeah, look at me. I'm really, really cool. And then you're kind of like home alone with her. And every so often you're a bit like, are you, are you dating anybody else? And they're a bit like, well, why does it matter? I'm dating you. And you kind of go, yeah, but like, is this a thing? Like, are we, are we, like, are we going somewhere? Are we going to get engaged? And you're a bit like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Why am I trying to spoil it? And then you go, no, 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 no. But I want to think about my future and I want to think about like whether or not this is real or not and what's going on. And that sometimes is what this industry feels like. It feels like on the outside, it looks glamorous and cool and you're doing amazing things and everyone's a bit like, oh my God, you're having the time of your life. But actually you kind of sometimes look at it and kind of go, do I want to do this for the rest of my, my life? And is this industry or this person or this supermodel going to get bored of me? And literally, I'm going to wake up one day and go open the paper and they're dating somebody else. And I'm like, oh, right, I guess it's over. And, and that sometimes is how working in this world feels like. And it's, you know, you run a recruitment agency, but you run a recruitment agency in a world that you know and understand. You've probably had the same conversations about like, well, maybe we could do a recruitment agency for tech. The rates in tech are much higher or in yeah. banking are much higher. Why are we not doing that? Do you know what? You're totally right for me as well. I mean, I, I bloody love TV. We've often thought about taking on other, other types of roles or going into different territory, exactly as you've just said. But I would, be, I would feel like an imposter because I love the fact that we can say, you know, we know the roles that you want us to fill because we've done them and we understand mm. them and all those right. fine nuances. And actually, if I had some sort of tech job with a title with acronyms I didn't know and a CV, I'd feel like such a bullshitter. I couldn't, I couldn't do it, although I know I could. I wouldn't want to be that person, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and, and also, like, all, a lot of the roles that you're recruiting for, you haven't done. Right? <laughs> no, but it feels you're, like I've done them because and, I know them. Time, you, feel like you, yeah. know, you feel like you know, and the reason is, and the reason is because you know the people, right? You know people that have done those jobs and you know people and you feel like you're part yeah. of the world and the community and you want it to love you and you want to love it, right? Yeah. And that is what TV does to you. I've been thinking about this a lot, how I don't have any hobbies, right? I don't have any hobbies. I like playing video games, so I wouldn't call it a hobby. Yeah. I like making food, I wouldn't call it a hobby. 
and I think part of the reason for that is that as when you work in creative industries, and in particular when you work in telly, every hobby feels like it should have to be work, right? If you suddenly mm. start going, oh, I, if I start playing video games to an elite level, everyone's going to be like, well, why don't you like pitch an idea about doing esports? And I'm like, no, I just like, if I start getting like really good at baking, they're a bit like, oh, are you going to come up with the next, next great British Bake Off? And I'm like... Yeah, it's like TV leeches into every element of your life. A hundred percent. And in a, in a way that it doesn't anywhere else, right? Mm. And it comes back to this idea of like imposter syndrome and being a co-switcher because you, you know, in normal jobs, inverted commas, right? You do your, you train for your job, you do your job, you go home and you watch telly, yeah. right? That's what normal people do in normal jobs, yeah. right? Like my, my sister-in-law, she's an optician right? She doesn't come home and go, oh, I'm going to do a podcast about being an optician and like start like watching TV and like watching the award ceremony for the, the greatest optician awards on television. It doesn't, it just doesn't happen. What's our switch off? You need to find a switch off for us. I, I do silly things at the weekend to switch off. I grew up in an era where it was a bit like either you live to work or you work to live, right? And if you work to live, that was seen as a negative thing. But if you live to work, that was like you've won the lottery, but actually, I'm not entirely sure if that is completely true anymore. If you live to work and then you don't have any work because this right. industry is so fickle and you suddenly are unemployed for a couple of months and then you start freaking out, it literally ingrains into every part of your life and every part of your identity and your psychology. And it's why we have so many mental health issues in this industry. It's why we have so much toxicity in this industry. In pretty every single house in the country, we point the furniture at the box that we represent, right? And so every time you walk into a room, any your mate's house, your family's house, your own house, it's just this big bl- black rectangle. It keeps getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. every year that you kind of go, that's part of my identity. It's not just a social thing. It's not just a hobby. It's not just a recreational thing. It's literally my identity that's hung on that wall. And I've got to make it better. It's my role in this world to make the stuff that appears on that screen better than the other people that are making it. And and that is, you know, something that I love doing because when you get it right, it is fucking amazing. Like, it's just incredible. Like, I'm making kids TV at the moment and, you know, my... And I've got a daughter who is the, at the age of the show that we're making stuff for. If you are telling me that you have a better experience than having your child sitting next to you watching you make a show that they're going to watch and then going off to school and telling their other kids about it it is incredible like it's the most amazing thing in the world but like you've said you've just said tv gets into your bloodstream and represents every part of your life i'm inspired by that but also terrified that you can't separate yourself from it it is terrifying but it's also the weirdest thing about this job that like unlike other worlds where you are a function you know, the world of television in particular, you are doing something that is, if it's done properly and it's done right, is shaping people's days. You know, it's it's, it's part of their enjoyable experience. And there's there's a massive responsibility that comes with that. So uh, going back to running your own company then, because I reckon that there will be people, you know, we could well have an imposter listening who has had a bad experience, who's then thinking, actually, maybe I could go out on my own. Maybe I could do this myself, make my own voice heard. How are things? Have you felt better setting up a company and being able to be in control of your own destiny and make your own output? I've been quite real about this. 
that one of the key reasons and motivations for me setting up a company is because nobody else would give me a job. And I'm not saying this that in a kind of old woe is me sort of way. I thought about it a lot and I went, I reckon that getting a commission is just as hard as getting a job, particularly at the level that I'm at now, right? So I can spend my time waiting for somebody else to get a commission and then me to get a call about that commission so I've got a job or I could get my own commissions and then build a business from in, in that direction. So the experiences that I am having, I check myself sometimes and I get really upset and really frustrated when a particular idea falls through or someone doesn't believe in it. And like I said, it's all subjective. So like somebody doesn't buy into it in the same way. I take it really personally. It's a, it's a flaw in my character. Although I say that, I, I don't understand how you can't take it personally. If you believe in your ideas really and then somebody says it. your ideas aren't good enough, yeah. then of course you're going to take it personally. We set up this company because I think that the experiences that I've had have been very negative and we, me and Jess want to build a company that looks after people as much as we can while also trying to make really good content. Sometimes for some reason those two things are at odds with each other. We do what we can to make sure it's not just about us, it's about the people that want to work with us because we think it's a privilege that strong, creative, organised, sensible intelligent fun people want to work with us and and we should respect that privilege what does being a a good boss look like to you i know it's a bit of a cliche but i do think you need to listen to people and that goes back to my experience of not being listened to like what's the point in like hiring people if you're not going to listen to them you don't have to agree with them you don't even have to action what they say but you have to acknowledge them and you have to make them feel like they're heard Because otherwise they have a bad experience, they don't learn anything, and you have a bad experience because you're not utilising your staff and and their their talents in the the best way. I've always been a massive fan of trying to like build a team around you that's better than you (laughs) to do all the stuff that they're good at to allow you to manage them, succeed, grow in areas that, that you wouldn't otherwise. You're right, but you also need to make sure those people you're hiring see value in you as well. You kind of go, wow, working with Kimberly, she's amazing at what she does, right? You don't want a situation where they're a bit like, working with Kimberly is really interesting because she's not very good at anything <laughs> because she's hired all of us and we're better at her than everything. That's obviously not the case. People are inspired to work with you and I hope are inspired to work with me because they recognise that we are good at putting teams together or convincing people to part with their money to give us a commission or, you know, to to, to land an idea that like other yeah. people couldn't land or whatever it might be. And and then therefore they fight for you. They, they want to put on your team shirt and kind of represent you as a company. It comes all the way back around to what, you know, we start this conversation about if people think that you're an imposter if people think that you're kind of like saying one thing but doing something else they won't they want to be a part of that tell me where you're at with Goldwaller. because we are a company led by someone like me that is of color and you know we are trying to do things a little bit differently and we understand certain worlds etc i do think a lot of commissioners and a lot of people kind of come to us as the outsiders as the wild card because they kind of go well we could just go to the same old, same old, but what would happen if we asked them to kind of look at this brief? Could they come back to us with something different? There is a pressure attached to that, that we always feel like we have to come back with something that is like a little bit left of centre, a little bit quirky, a little bit weird. And the amount of times I've had feedback where it's been like, your idea was the most creative in the room, 
but we're not going to hire you because this lot were really safe and actually we don't want to take too many risks and I'm a bit like right okay and then you try to go in the other direction and they're a bit like we didn't really expect these sort of ideas from you why have you talked to us about this and I'm a bit like right okay it's part of the game but it's also kind of something that I've had to deal with as an individual so so that's kind of the challenge with it but there are times when it's an advantage and there are times when it's clearly a frustrating disadvantage because you go into rooms and you're like there is no way that this is going to come off. Like, I know why I'm here. I'm here because it helps appease other people's conscience and it helps other people feel comfortable about what about what they're doing. But then there have been times when I've taken it too far. And I've said out, I've like, you know, there'll be times when I've like got a bee in my bonnet or a chip on my shoulder and I've kind of gone, ah, the only reason I'm here is because I'm brown. And they've gone, well, that's a fucking stupid thing to say. Like, you're here because we actually value your opinion and we think you know what you're talking about. And I have to kind of go, oh, right, okay, fine, fair enough. But it does sap your energy. It does sound like your overall feeling now on imposter syndrome is to to embrace your difference and kind of lean into that in the right context. Would that be fair? Oh, I think it's even further than that. I just cannot understand how we as a as an industry and as a and even as a society can exist without having that level of difference. If we are all homogenous and we all think the same way, then kind of like what's the point? This is a advice whenever new entrants into this industry come to me and say, you know, what are you looking for? What is it that you do? I'm always saying that look, you know, we are creative collaborators. You have to tell me what it is that you want to do and how I can help. And I have to tell you what it is that I'm trying to do and how you can help me. It's never a one-way street. And and that is the kind of key to this, is that I'm always looking for people that can come to me, not with arrogance or entitlement or whatever it might be, but can come to me and say, look, I've got access or knowledge or talent or a kind of a skill set that you doesn't look like you currently have in your setup. I'd like to offer that to you. In return, what can you offer me? That's like the most exciting thing about all of this. And that requires otherness. That's such a nice approach. It's an exchange of talents. Junior, and how how cool is that? But you say it's nice and it's cool. Literally, I see it the other way. You are dumb if you don't think that way. This is, look, it's a humble brag. But I was introduced to Little Sims in my old company in Shoreditch. She did one of her first music videos on a dirty old sofa that we had. She is arguably one of the biggest pop stars in the UK right now. If you can be part of that story, that is Mm. the real joy of working in television and working in the creative industries, that you've been there at the chrysalis of something and it's gone all the way up to somebody winning a BAFTA. And then you ride on their (laughs) coattails and you're like, the reason they're successful is because of me. Yeah, and you Um, tell stories on a podcast about Little Sims. Exactly. Um, Okay, last thing then. What would you tell the younger Faraz, knowing what you know now? Uh, run Um, uh, look look, I um, when you start in this industry it feels like it's about making friends right it feels like everybody you work with can be your best mate because they're young and they're beautiful and they're doing creative stuff and they're like you know we're getting to kind of you know rule the cultural world and this that and the other so it feels like these are going to be your best friends for life they're not going to be your best friends for life and actually the key to it is building a family and not building a friendship group you need people that will go Faraz, Kimberly, shouldn't do that. That's a bit of a dickish move in the way that your your cousin or your brother or your or your parents might do. You need people that will test you and frustrate you, but you really still respect them just because of who they are. You need people that will have your back and will, will kind of walk over hot coals for you. And most importantly, and it kind of comes back to our relationship, Kimberly, you know, we worked together as researchers very early on in our career. Our paths went in a different direction. And then we bumped into each other at the Edinburgh TV Festival. 
and we're like, oh my God, you're doing amazing stuff. Oh my God, you're doing amazing stuff. We were excited to see each other. We were kind of backing each other up. We were championing what each other was doing. And, yeah. you know, we got back in touch and we're doing things like this now as a result. It was just like I was bumping you out of the way of the microwave to heat up my lunch. Right? A final thought, actually. I, I was thinking hard about this. We can't all be imposters, can we? I genuinely don't think that everyone thinks they're an imposter. I think that there are those that are entitled that think they deserve to be here. And I think that you have to be an imposter to have the motivation to kind of go, well, I want to break down this system. I say this a lot about being an indie, right? We are the imposter indie because there is, it's a very established market. It's a very established world. There's lots of big indies within it. Like we are sometimes pitted against each other as smaller indies. And I'm like, I ain't playing that game. I will send you briefs, I will send you work if I don't think I can do it. And I think it's our, our opportunity, both as individuals and as small companies, to, to back each other up. Awesome. Thank you, Faraz, for being part of the Imposter Club. I feel like I should get T-shirts. Should I get T-shirts? I feel like because it's such a small club at the moment, it's like when I was at Cubs. So you've got like a really danky scout hut in the, mid- in the middle of nowhere. And then by the time you get to the end of Series 1, maybe you'll be buying property in East London. Oh, I don't know about that. I love a dank scout hut. I used to be a beaver leader. Did you know? No. We. <laughs> yeah, true. Right, we've got to go and pick up children now, probably. We do. At the time. Come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence and place premium senior talent in behind the screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, executive producer, Rosie Turner. (laughs) 